Hi everyone, a very warm welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast. My name's Caroline Phillips and I'm here for episode three out of four of our maternity mini-series that I have the great pleasure to be hosting with Stacey Robinson, um, the London Ambulance Service Practice Lead Midwife. Uh, This is the third episode, like I say, and we are talking about those women who are 20 weeks or more gestation. We're going to be talking about some of the uh, complications which arise in the final 20 weeks of pregnancy. Then we're going to talk a little bit about preterm birth and also a little bit about uh, neonatal life support. So it's a massive pleasure again to welcome Stacey back. Hi Stacey. Hiya. And uh, like I mentioned, this is our third episode, three out of four. So if you haven't had a chance to already uh, have a listen, uh, in the first episode, we spoke about uh, maternal physiological changes and also what a normal delivery of a baby should look like. And in the second episode, we spoke about some of the complications in early pregnancy, miscarriage, bleeding and holistic care of the woman in those situations. So please do um, go back and have a listen to those if you haven't had a chance to already. But moving into uh, today's episode, As I mentioned, we're going to be talking about those in the latter stage of pregnancy, so those who are 20 weeks onwards. And first of all, uh, I think what we're going to do is start off with some of the complications. So particularly, we're going to be talking a little bit about bleeding, um, 20 weeks onwards, what that means and how we can recognise it. So Stacey, could we talk a little bit now about So Stacey, let's talk about bleeding um, for those who are pregnant and their pregnancy gestation is 20 weeks onwards. Uh, What could the bleeding be and how can we recognise it if it's not obvious to us? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, there there are differentials as far as bleeding during pregnancy is concerned. I think it's critically important we state right from the word go with this episode that bleeding in pregnancy is abnormal and I think for ambulance clinicians and our call handlers when they hear a woman that reports that that she's bleeding I think it's just to really have it high on our radar that this is abnormal and that the thing that this woman needs is a labour ward whether that be a a theatre in the labour ward to deliver the baby very quickly or just you know to have a scan and just be checked over but this isn't something that could be managed pre-hospitally this is very much a case of us getting a better understanding on the recognition as you've said um, and then very much moving her as safely and as quickly as possible to to um, to care um, in the hospital so I think um, like you said there are different reasons so the most common thing that we like to differentiate uh, pre-hospitally in our education is um, what is a placental abruption uh, what is a placenta previa and then maybe any other causes of vaginal bleeding that can can happen um, so placental abruption is where the placenta detaches itself away from the uterine wall um, now there can be various different reasons as to why that's happened uh, the most common reason is trauma whether um, that's a case that you know so pre-hospitally it could be that you've attended a road traffic accident um, and the force in the accident has has led to an abruption um, it could be uh, domestic violence, 
Um, so trauma to the abdomen has caused the placenta to come away falling down, you know, all the various different things that you'd be very familiar with as pre-hospital clinicians. Um, the, the complexity or the, the, the trouble with, with the recognition is that the bleeding quite often is concealed with an abruption. Um, so it won't be that the woman will, will be reporting fresh red vaginal bleeding. Um, she will quite often be presenting just with pain because the bleeding is concealed, um, which usually occurs when the, the um, placenta is only partially separated from the uterine wall. So the blood is concealed behind, almost like a pocketed um, where only some of the placenta has come away. So, you know, we touched on the blood flow in, the, in episode one, as you said, we, we were, t you know, we've already touched on the amount of blood that is flowing through that placenta. So we know that if that, you know, kind of comes only halfway detached, you've got that open vessel there that's got that huge amount of blood flow coming every minute. So the woman will have a buildup of blood and that will cause an extreme amount of pain um, with that as well. So the most common thing we see with abruption is women reporting pain. Now, it's really, really key anyway throughout this this episode as we start to talk about preterm birth and everything is that we don't, you know, anything below 37 weeks is abnormal, whether that be pain, vaginal bleeding, water's breaking, that's preterm. So if you've got a woman presenting at 35 weeks with abdominal pain, we have to have the highest suspicion that this is abruption. We can't normalise the abnormal and think that this is early labour. Mm. We have to think what is causing this woman who is not due for another couple of weeks to be experiencing abdominal pain. And I guess I guess on that point, and, and just thinking back to our first episode where we talked about the physiological mm -hmm. changes with, with a pregnant lady um, showing signs of shock very late on, yeah. actually, if we've got a lady who's in abdominal pain and perhaps her observations may be normal, like her vital signs might be normal, we could be led down a false path of maybe this maybe this is the normal, yeah. like you say, normalising the abnormal. And we have to really think, actually, this pain, you know, before 37 weeks is just not right. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. And that's, that's typically how they will present, exactly as you've said. So, you know, on the monitor, when you get her sorted out, she, she's displaying very normal vital signs. She's not scoring on any of her charts. But again, that's that compensating physiology that she's got. But... You know, we don't know, we don't have ultrasounds to be able to, to scan pre-hospitally to see whether that placenta has come away or what the cause of the bleeding is. So we have to have that really high suspicion of this woman is presenting in a, a, a real amount of pain. I mean, I've not had one myself, but, um, you know, a placental abruption, I think, is the highest amount of pain I've seen a woman in when that, when that placenta is really shearing itself away from the uterine wall. It's a constant pain. It won't go away she will probably not want you to come anywhere near her as far as touching her um and i know before the podcast we were talking about that kind of woody abdomen and sort of how would we differentiate and you know you're on your high suspicion anyway because she's reporting continuous pain if she does allow you to palpate her abdomen it will feel we say woody is in it is it's wooden it's rock hard it is um again like i said if she does even let you touch it it's rock hard and it stays rock hard I heard a description once, Sophie, that a woody abdomen is similar to the sort of um, the area on your forehead where the skin is obviously quite a lot thinner, and you just it just feels very bony. Is yeah. that a, is that a common yeah. description? Is that yeah. a good? Choice? It is, yeah, and it, it it does 
uh, yeah, I'd say that's quite good actually because it doesn't exaggerate in that it, it it does feel it does feel that hard and you can't believe it feels that hard actually. And the fact that it's constant, you can understand then why that's causing such a great amount of pain for the woman, as well as the fear that's associated with that. But I think, you know, we are emphasising on this because there might not be any bleeding. And if there is, it could be small amounts. Now, if it's a complete abruption, if the placenta has completely come away, then there will be a lot of blood that's visible. Um, and and obviously that will, you know, we'll be able to tell, you know, I've had I've had crews that have gone in and said that the woman is visibly still pregnant. She's not in labour, but there are, you know, there are, her sheets are covered in blood mm. and she's, you know, sort of sitting in two litres of, of blood when they get there. Um, so, so it's either or it's either concealed or unconcealed and I think it's just you know the the sort of non-concealed the visible is easier to recognize obviously um but it's just having that really high suspicion yeah. if, if a woman is presenting with other those other things and this can occur at any point like you said this is focusing from 20 to 40 and I think this can happen at any time there are women that are more at risk so women that have preeclampsia um any abnormality that's been recognized as far as on their scans as far as the placenta is concerned um not just preeclampsia but hypertension anyway so if they've got essential hypertension or hasn't yet developed into preeclampsia that again is another risk factor um and then we've touched on trauma as well um as as, as the other cause of it as well and i guess a question really for me is could it be possible that placenta abruption could happen even like you said up to 40 weeks are there cases where potentially it's it's hard to differentiate between a woman who's in labor versus a woman you know if they're 38 39 weeks ha have there ever been cases that, or situations that you've seen where you could perhaps easily be mistaken for thinking that the woman's in labor but actually when you really ask about her pain it's not coming and going as a contraction it's there continuously and that is a red flag can that happen yes absolutely and i think especially if we've walked in and a woman is still able to tolerate a conversation and is is almost you know she's so scared she's not yet verbalizing completely what she's feeling i think that's very easy to assume that this is contraction and that's what we want to do isn't it we would walk in and see this and we would want to almost our unconscious bias will want to tell us that she's 40 weeks she's presenting in pain oh this is early labor you know or this is you know if it's radiating around to her back all of these things is what we're trained to to associate with labor but i think you've just you've just said it perfectly in that this is a woman that will be in continuous pain so whether or not you have to ask her and you have to palpate her abdomen to feel it and you have to actually assess and say i'm watching you i can see in your face that you're in pain i'm concerned that when you're moving you're in constant pain you know, I really want to get you down to the ambulance and get you to hospital because I'm concerned that you need some closer monitoring. I think that's it, and that's how, um, that's the way that you can differentiate is when, you know, by putting your hand on that woman's abdomen and seeing, you know, if you can. If she's refusing to let you or she doesn't want you anywhere near her, that again is another red flag. Yeah. And it, I guess coming back to that technique of sort of counting when a contraction starts and then when it finishes, and obviously if you can't do that, if there's no clear start and stop, then, then we should be thinking, oh, this is not, this is not right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. And then I guess we've mentioned um, placenta previa, and very classically, I think in you know in training, you know years gone by, it's been that placenta abruption is the more serious condition. 
but you won't see as much blood, but it will be very painful. Whereas placenta previa, you'll see lots of blood and it's less painful and it's less severe for, for woman and baby. How, how true is that? How easy is it to differentiate pre-hospitally? And actually, does it really matter? Do we really need to differentiate between the two? Um, on one hand, you absolutely don't because bleeding is bleeding and that's abnormal and you need to get her into hospital. So I think you're right as far as that's concerned in that you don't really need to know. You just need to, to recognise that she's bleeding, she's pregnant, she needs to be in hospital. Um, but I think as far as for education, I think it's probably really valuable, especially the... the, the signs that the woman might present I think what's key is with placenta previa is just what you've said she may present without any pain and she may not have noticed these are the women that will wake up in the middle of the night and notice there's there's bleeding when they go to the toilet or there's bleeding on the sheets it isn't it isn't a pain induced uh, vaginal bleed and that's just purely because of where the placenta is sitting so placenta previa is where the, the placenta is embedded in the lower segment of the uterus and there's various degrees of it as to where it sits in relation to the cervix, so the opening of the uterus. Now, traditionally, and, and the care when I very much worked on a, on an antenatal ward and a, and a labor ward full time, we were of the stance that if it was very severe, the placenta previa, so if the placenta had embedded itself covering the opening of the, of the cervix, these women will be on the antenatal ward for a lot of their pregnancy, usually on bed rest, you know, in a room that's very closest to the nurses' station, and um, because of that exact reason, really, it's bleeding with no association to pain. You know, these women would just start to bleed out of nowhere, and it was only you know they would wake up from the wetness on their sheets rather than experience any pain. Nowadays, if a woman is scanned quite regularly, which she would be if it's picked up at the uh, lower line placenta, they're scanned very regularly and provided she hasn't had any episodes of PB bleeding she might often if it's not too bad be um, managed as an outpatient which is wonderful for the woman if she feels comfortable but it means obviously when she does start to bleed the first thing that says on their notes is call 999 mm. um, so I think we have to have it high on our radar that there are those women that are being, are being managed as outpatient and this is how she'll present most likely is that you know something has happened where she you know, she hasn't felt pain, but she's felt blood loss. Um, and it will be that fresh red bleeding um, that is not associated with pain. And, and what, are the, what are the risks, Stacey, in terms of placenta previa? What are the risks to mum and baby? So any vaginal bleeding, um, whether it's abruption or a previa, um, is, is telling us that that placenta is, is no longer delivering the blood flow that it needs to to that baby um, so the risk is primarily to the baby and we, we have to assume that that baby now has been cut off as far as uh, blood flow and oxygen not completely we don't know how but that's the problem pre-hospital we don't know and we can't see you know we can't see a fetal heart we can't auscultate it so we don't know how compromised that baby is from the bleeding to the mother this could become quickly an uncontrollable hemorrhage um, so again, that's we have to know, like you said, from the, the physiology of the woman, you know, how much blood can she tolerate? Um, so it's not only a risk to the baby as far as its blood flow being cut off as a result of the placenta coming away, but also, you know, it could become a life-threatening hemorrhage to the mother. Lovely. Thanks very much, Stacey. 
So if it's all right now, what I think we'll do is move on to preterm birth. So can we talk a little bit about what the actual definition of preterm is um, and in terms of how we can assess pre-hospitally um, what the preterm situation might be when perhaps the mum is somewhere and they don't have the notes with them or the due date is quite vague. Can we talk about firstly what is the definition of preterm? Yeah, so a preterm birth is a birth that happens before 37 completed weeks of pregnancy. Um, and I think, like you said, that's really, really important because we will have a woman present with a variety of symptoms or signs or concerns. But that's, that's really key is that you pick that hold on. This woman is telling me she's 36 and four days. That's still preterm. Yes, it's moderate to late preterm, but it's still preterm. This baby's coming too soon. So its physiology and its growing has not been completed yet. There's not much more to go when it's 36 weeks. I'm not suggesting that they're gonna be born in really poor condition, but I think when we when we go back to that term of normalizing the abnormal, you know, it is preterm. So it, this baby is gonna be born with risk factors uh, with it. So. There are various degrees, so we've got, like I said, that moderate to late preterm is 32 to 37 weeks. Very preterm is a baby that's born from 28 weeks to 31 weeks. And then you have our extreme preterm, which are babies that are born before 28 weeks. So they're very, very vulnerable. Um, kind of the, the, the amount, the number of births is, you know, only 5% of babies born in this country will be extremely preterm they're still quite low um, in numbers um, the majority of preterm babies are born in that in that late preterm and do we know really why why babies come early no unfortunately i mean i think it's getting better there's a lot of research going into it um, which is a really really good thing to hear um, we interestingly had uh, we did a, a event actually at work with the London Ambulance Service on Premature Awareness Day. You know how they have their different national awareness days. Mm. Um, so we invited um, someone from Bliss, which is the UK's leading charity, into the research into preterm birth and the support for families. And you know, speak, listening to her speak and sort of educate our staff on on what they're providing in the way of funding for research was brilliant, actually, because we still don't know. We, do, we, we really, really don't know that much. We know that it affects an awful lot of families um, and, um, and it can be very traumatic when you're looking at a baby that's born at 24 weeks. They've got weeks ahead of them in hospital, that family. Yeah. So, um, you know, the numbers, I think what she said that was about 60,000 babies a year are born prematurely. So that is from that 37 weeks and below. Um, so you're only talking about 7, 8% of all pregnancies. Um, but um, as far as risk factors, it would be, so we know that if a woman has a, an infection that goes untreated, particularly if it's a urinary tract infection, something that's quite close sort of anatomically to the genital tract, that can trigger preterm labor, waters were going, um, and the woman is in, its, in herself becomes very, very unwell as well, you know, potentially septic. Um, so we know that, we know that women that have recurrent preterm deliveries or recurrent miscarriages will be invited for investigations to see if it's something to do with um, cervical length. So there's lots of research that's taking place now as far as what we can do to help women that have 
been found and diagnosed with those problems that mean that they cannot maintain a term pregnancy. They've had recurrent preterm births. Um, But otherwise, we really don't know, considering it does affect an awful lot of women and families. I think, you know, the research over the next decade is going to be really interesting to see if we can find whether it's a hormonal thing, something that triggers um, women to just go into preterm labour far sooner than than they were meant to. Yeah, seven to eight percent is actually quite a bit bigger than I was expecting. Yeah. It's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. And I think, um, although, you know, this is probably a different conversation, but in terms of the the psychology of that and like you say the baby being in hospital and especially at the moment parents not being able to stay and having to leave the baby you know in the hospital and then go home and come back every day um must be hugely psychologically challenging for for everybody and um yeah let's let's look forward to more of that research And just in terms of those situations where potentially um, our clinicians have arrived on scene or they're on scene and there's an imminent delivery happening and we've got a preterm baby. I mean, obviously, ideally, if we've got a preterm situation where a woman is in labour, we really want to get her to the hospital. Mm. But if that just isn't possible... Is there anything in terms of the management that we need to be particularly mindful of or anything we need to do differently for those that are preterm? Not not really actually and I think I think you've you've made it really clear in that actually it would there's no need to rush anything more. You know, ideally exactly as you've said this baby we know as far as survivability the latest research which is telling us that babies are surviving much earlier now so you know you're talking 22 weeks um Though this is all data that's coming when the baby is born in hospital, so we know that a baby that's of extreme preterm gestation and is born out of hospital, the survivability is a lot lower, um, and that is because of the environment. And this has happened unexpectedly. So the actual management of the birth itself is is the principle is exactly the same, and the same with the first few minutes of that of that baby's life as far as the the management is very much like what we're going to touch on with newborn care and newborn life support. Um, the principle is exactly the same. There are nuances that we'll touch on definitely as far as, you know, this is how you manage when it's term. However, be mindful that if it's a preterm, you might want to consider doing other little things. But on the whole, it's kind of what we talked a lot about last week um, with the holistic care and the, the human factor element of this woman did not expect to wake up you know, in the middle of the night with some abdo pain that has become very quickly not just abdominal pain but pressure in her vagina where she feels that something is coming. You know, she knows that this baby isn't due for another 10 weeks. Something has happened incredibly quickly. Um, so it's very much about this is totally out of everyone's comfort zone. So probably the best advice I can give is is exactly as you've said, the delivery actually is, is exactly the same and can quite often be um, much quicker because of how timely the baby is. Um, we're going to touch on, I know we're going to talk about more emergencies later, but as far as breach versus consent, quite common for them to be in a breach position again. So we can talk about that management when we talk about um, breach birth. Um, but yeah, on the whole, it's very much quicker. Um the third stage management isn't so, actually. You will find that the placenta is quite often retained with extreme preterm. And again, that's because 
it was never meant to come at you know 30 weeks pregnancy so you tend to find but you're going to be getting going anyway there's not going to be any waiting around for the delivery of the placenta anyway so that shouldn't change your management anyway it's really interesting that the, the first and the second stage of labor happens but then yeah. the third stage is like no i'm not ready exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> okay that's brilliant great okay thank you sophie so uh we're moving swiftly on now to neonatal life support so the baby at birth resuscitation um let's talk about i guess um some of the key differences to neonatal life support what we're doing to, to manage um, these babies um when when do we start let's start here when do we think that we need to start uh, initiating nls in terms of weeks of gestation when is the cutoff mm. yeah that's a that's a really good question actually to start off with so um, our current guidelines, so our current pre-hospital guidelines, are based around this 20-week cutoff. It's kind of why we chose to have this this episode as the 20 weeks. So that's to suggest if if the woman is very confident in her gestation um, and her history, and she tells you that this is below 20 weeks, and the baby is born, we don't make any resuscitative efforts for this baby. It's very much around um, a term that we're using is comfort care. So it's a lot more. I guess palliative care that you'd be very familiar with to supporting the family um, having equipment on our vehicles that will allow that so we were talking about the cuddle pockets to with miscarriage last week something that um, will provide that support because it will be extremely traumatic and emotional and very very sad for the family but we know that this baby has no survivability chances so the kindest thing we can do is to offer the, the mum and baby and the family to be together Sorry, and actually, Sophie, I was going to say, you know, pre-20 weeks, in terms of actually physically being able to do a resuscitation yeah. on something, um, on a baby that small, the structures, I am assuming, wouldn't really be in place. Exactly. In terms of the, you know, the nasopharyngeal area, you know, trying to ventilate a baby of that size. Completely. It, it, it would be impossible, you're right. And I think those are the redeeming features that you would notice that would tell you. Um, I think what's important to, to recognise, just so no one is taken by surprise, I remember my very first um, late miscarriage, I was, I was very taken aback by the effort that the baby tries to make it, that even at 19 weeks, um, you know, it, it can take you by surprise that there'll be some respiratory effort, there'll be some tone, there'll be potentially some flaring or gasping, um, but that's very much end of life. Um, as far as the, this baby is not viable um, and it's much better off just explaining to the parents that this can sometimes be expected mm. but that there is absolutely nothing that we can do that is viable to this to this baby um, and like you said there isn't there's physically nothing we can do we haven't got the equipment the baby will not respond to anything that we do because it's just bought being born way too early yeah and, and I think having having said that um, and as we've sort of sort of alluded to, actually pre-hospitally, sometimes the situations in which we attend women who are in a in a an earlier preterm sort of labour situation, sometimes the gestation really isn't that clear, mm. and there is a tick to do with 
recognising when somebody is 20 weeks gestation a good clue to do with the height of the fundus, isn't there? Yeah. Would you mind explaining that? Yeah, of course. So if you're, if it, exactly. So the kind of general rule of thumb, and of course we have to take body mass into consideration here and things, but if you, if you can, if you are arriving to a woman that's very vague about her, that she's presenting with signs that could be telling you she is delivering, then you're exactly right. It's kind of the, the height of the, the umbilicus, so a woman's belly button. If you can palpate, as in you can place her hand on and, and feel the fundus there mm. at the belly button, you, you can assume that this is 20 weeks and more, mm. that it's got to that, that place where the uterus has grown outside of the pelvis and has started showing and, and is now palpable at the, at the umbilicus. Mm. That's kind of the general. So the top of the bump at the belly button. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, about the 20 week mark. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really um, helpful thing to, to keep in mind for us in, in those kind of situations. Brilliant. Okay. So um, we have a woman who is not, uh, she's over 20 weeks, mm-hmm. um, but she is less than 24. So she's between the 20 and 24 mark. Mm-hmm. Um, resuscitate or not resuscitate the newborn? So I think. Um, again a really really good question and these are really challenging cases I you know I really do empathize with crews that have to attend these and make these judgment calls the the consensus very much is if if this baby is born between 20 and 24 weeks and is showing no signs of life so you have auscultated with a stethoscope to hear if there's a heartbeat um, you've properly assessed to check for signs of respiratory effort and there is none then this will most likely be a late miscarriage and it is that comfort care it's just explaining to the parents that this baby is born very early with no signs of life and go about the care on the way to hospital as far as the comfort care that we want to and when I say comfort care you know I do want to assure we're 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 very well aware as a um a kind of working group within the national guidelines we're aware that this stuff isn't necessarily written down as yet but we are working towards a care package and like a care bundle that will help families clinicians with these with these cases so that's kind of the umbrella term for the management of these cases is this comfort care and that's going to come with a lot of education and support for our staff because it will obviously have to be different but going back to 20 to 24 weeks if um, the baby is showing signs um, of life so is making an attempt to breathe you can auscultate a heart rate, then it is our duty of care to carry out ventilatory support. You know, it is not, even if even if the mother tells you that she's 21 weeks, we know the survivability is, is very, I mean, almost completely unlikely. But that is very much for the call of a senior neonatologist. Mm. You know, I would never expect our ambulance clinicians to make a decision to not attempt resuscitation of these, of these babies. Mm. Um, so that's that's the rule of thumb showing signs of life between 20 and 24 weeks actively manage and resuscitate if it's not showing any signs of life then this will be a late miscarriage mm. and and holistic supportive comfort care so active signs of life we're going to do some ventilatory support yes and the ventilations if they're going to work will help pick the baby up yes. if it's success if it's if it's meant to work absolutely yeah. and the and the biggest sign that we'll see because the the lungs and the and the chest wall um is so so tiny with these very preterm we want you to be listening in that's how we're going to know that this baby is responding to that not necessarily won't we won't see what we're going to talk about as far as chest rise is concerned 
um, we might not see that as much with very preterm babies, but we will see a change in heart rate. So auscultating, yeah. auscultating for breath sounds and for heart rate. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of those then that are um, that are twenty four weeks gestation and above, um, we've we're on scene um, or we're in an ambulance and the baby is delivered, um, but the baby has come out a little bit flat. We're going to um, work through the ways in which we'll assess the newborn and perhaps I think we can start there. So let's talk about how we can assess the newborn well. What are we looking for? How can we do that? Yeah, um, so um, the new, this is really timely actually that we're recording this because the um, ERC, the European Research Council, uh, published their new guidance last week. So even though it's not fully in practice yet, I, I really liked when I was I was reading through it and they presented it, just they kind of broke things down. So I, I think that's quite a good place to start in that, you know, 85% of babies that are uh, that are born and they're, and they're term, so we're not necessarily talking preterm, um, breathe spontaneously without any intervention. And I think it's the confidence and the reassurance to know that this may take up to a minute to establish regular respirations. So our biggest thing that we can do to help these babies is to dry them and that gentle stimulation. So they respond really well to tactile stimulation and that's all that a baby could need to take that first gasp. And then we can take our breath. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We can breathe. Yeah, it, re it really is. And, you yeah. know, some babies um, really do, you kind of, you're talking to them. I've talked to many a baby during that first minute where, mm. I, you know, I'm saying, come on, baby, and I'm just drying their back and getting them going because, you know, there's nothing, and this is when I've had the luxury of fetal monitoring, so I've, I've, I've listened to a beautiful heart rate all the way through this labour, and then it's born and it's just got a bit shocked on the way out, and it's a little bit stunned, and so it's a bit floppy, um, and so it just needs that tactile stimulation, that, you know, drying off and just, you know. So that counts for the majority of babies that we're going to be looking after in the pre-hospital environment and then you know as far as the management you know a further 10% will respond to that tactile stimulation so that really good drying down and that stimulation and then giving it some help with opening the airway so we're just assisting and letting like almost kick-starting what they're meant to do and then we're going down as far as you know the idea that it could be any way like adult resus, it, it's just not. We're talking maybe 0.03, I think they quoted, was the amount of babies that may require or go down as far as requiring adrenaline or any other drugs as far as the management of resus. So it really is um, respiratory arrest if you do want to kind of think of it in those terms. Mm. Um, and so we can do a lot in that first minute. Yeah. And um, in terms of the two things there, I guess, that tactile stimulation. I remember, you know, doing that myself first, you know, on the, the first time that I was required to do that. And I was really fortunate. The first time um, that I had a delivery pre-hospitally, the midwife actually arrived before the baby came, which was just the best luxury. <laughs> I think I've maybe yeah. said that in the last one of the last episodes. But the midwife came, so I had that amazing support where I was still doing the delivery but I had this person here supporting me and really guiding me. Um, and, uh, and I remember starting off with the tactile stimulation on my, um, on, on my um, sort of setup that I'd got. 
and she was like, "Don't look a bit firmer," you know. <laughs> and and it's quite firm, really, that tactile stimulation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think I think experience helps you with that. You kind of know at handling a newborn baby. You know, you and I would probably handle a newborn baby quite differently. Um, but I think we have changed it to um i think in the old test when i very first started teaching nms i think the the guidance was vigorous stimulation and now we're you know we are a little bit more aware about you know tissue viability and so the term is very much gentle gentle sorry (laughs) gentle tactile stimulation Mm -hmm. so it's it's a good patting down and it's a good rubbing of the back if this is a term nice big baby um then absolutely a good rub of the back especially can really help trigger um but i would avoid any vigorous stimulation now where you see those sort of old videos of those babies being kind of lifted up by their chin and given a good like (laughs) rubbing um the kind of stuff that i probably saw when i was training um it's like you're it's like you're like you're doing the dishes you're drying the dishes (laughs) (laughs) that's what i think of it (laughs) you dry your dishes i mean yeah the old days it's um but yeah no exactly as yeah. far as it, it's just and the baby yeah. will respond if this baby that isn't you know has has been born and is showing um signs of of distress or compromise um that will show you very much how far down the journey of hypoxia they are is how quickly they respond to that that stimulation and I really love those statistics. Can you just remind me again what you said about um, how many babies who actually are born and will require the full resuscitative effort and in hospital potentially um, adrenaline? Because obviously we don't give that pre-hospitally. We don't give adrenaline pre-hospitally in NLS. Yes, so it was... Um, it was it 0.03, you said? Yes. I mean, yeah. that is so reassuring, isn't it? It's yeah. really good to hear that because I think that is, you know certainly you know when we don't have monitoring pre-hospitally we think what's going on in there and those figures are just so reassuring to hear so that's great and even chest compressions are less than one percent so it really it really you know this is this is kind of hot off the press guidance which i think is really reassuring for us to kind of put it in context and perspective yeah absolutely great okay so we are our baby's been delivered we're on a nice setup off of the floor yeah so obviously you probably are most likely to have um this baby is birthed on the floor maybe or on a bed it's definitely on that not on that hard flat surface that's above so i think that first minute of assessment is really important because that is what's going to tell you um okay i can leave um the cord attached for optimal cord clamping or delayed cord clamping depending on what terminology you're familiar with um, and I can give skin to skin to start off some drying with this baby or actually no I'm concerned so the main things that we want to look at in that first minute are the tone so as you're stimulating and drying that baby how does the tone feel and if you've ever seen a floppy baby you'll know you know unfortunately our our resus mannequins haven't been brilliant have they as far as showing us what a floppy baby is we kind of drill it in as far as check the tone check the tone but quite often unless you've seen a floppy baby you you know you think it's like your nls models don't you and a floppy baby is really really difficult to manage um particularly their head so naturally a newborn baby has quite a disproportionately large head their their occiputs are quite large so when they're laid down they will naturally flex let alone if they've also got a loss of tone because they've been born in poor condition. So they're really, really difficult to manage. So it's not as easy as we say as far as that neutral airway. So 
your tone is what you're looking at the color although it's not a great sign of oxygenation we can look and think hold on this baby is really pale it's kind of patchy white how long has this baby been hypoxic for it's not blue you know we don't mind blue babies actually especially when they've just been born it's fine and then obviously what we want to do is we want them to pink up really nicely so color tone then you're doing your breathing assessment with this baby taking its first gasp and is establishing regular respirations and then auscultating the the heartbeat and we know that we want this heartbeat to be over 100 um, and that we're concerned definitely a very slow heartbeat is is under 60. So that's what you're doing in that. And then if you're concerned at all at any of those, that's when, just like you said, you're making your move to your pre-prepared setup, mm. which is off the floor, flat, warm, mm. plenty of towels, um, you know, padding that you could need. And within that first minute, all four of those things should be... Good. Yes, the tone should be good. The heart rate should be so fast that we can't yeah. hear. It. We can't count it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and the color should have pinked up, and those breaths should be good within that first minute. Yeah, exactly. And that is that brings back the importance of that timing of the delivery, doesn't it? You know, yeah. the time. It's all about the timings, isn't yeah. it? It's timing yeah. the contractions, timing um the the head, timing the delivery of the shoulders, timing delivery of baby. Um, and so you've got that there because time can so quickly run away with you if you're trying to do these things. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So we've been very unfortunate in this situation because sadly this is one of the cases where it is one of those um, 15% of babies that need some kind of intervention. So we've got a baby that's perhaps not got great tone, maybe they're not making any respiratory effort for themselves. So we've made that decision then, as you say, to move on to our area that we've prepared for NLS. At this point, it's acceptable to think about cutting cutting the cord now because we're going to have to to exactly. to separate the two. Exactly. And to, yeah. And that's that's I did appreciate that actually in in you know from a pre-hospital perspective, the um you know we we know the evidence for delayed cord clamping is is absolutely fantastic. But I think what we were from a pre-hospital perspective was that judgment call of well hold on I need to get this baby into a into an environment that optimizes the resuscitation I'm not going to leave it on the floor to be attached to the cord when I know that it's cold drafty wet so it is you know the guidance very much reflects that in that you know thermocare is far more important um you know as brilliant as delayed cord camping is you know it is fantastic the 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 numbers speak for themselves um but it's it's as you said it's completely appropriate that you would make the decision and counsel the parents to say you know i have to clamp and cut your baby's cord now because i really want to take it over to an area i can properly assess and give it some help yeah absolutely and we're going to come on in a little minute to talk about the thermoregulation of the baby but I guess one of the important things to remember here as well is that you've got your two towels in the pack for a reason. So you've been stimulating and drying the baby with that towel. This is a key opportunity now for you to switch the towels over. Don't leave the baby in the wet towel. So yeah. when you're moving the location of the baby onto the, the raised surface, firm surface elsewhere, your resuscitation area that you've prepared and get the wet towel off, and get the fresh towel on because that will 
really help with trying to keep the baby a bit warmer in this situation. Absolutely. So uh, we've got to the point where the first minute's been done and um, we've got an issue with one of those four things or maybe all of them. Um, what are our next few steps in terms of how we're going to manage this baby now? Yeah, so we want to... Um yeah, so as you said, we've got this baby in a in a in a right position on the right surface. So it's a case of now getting this baby into a position that optimizes its own ability to o- open its airway. So the drying and stimulating hasn't worked; it still hasn't taken a breath. So we need to get this baby in into a neutral position. And so by that I mean it is different from adults and children. It's not anything like a head tilt chin lift. It's very much positioning this baby so it's completely parallel to its surface, and. Like I said, because a newborn baby quite often will naturally flex where it's got very limited tone plus this large head, it will naturally flex. So, you know, the common things that we use pre-hospitally is like the um, uh, sanitary pad that's in the maternity pack. And it's just of a good, when it's folded over, it's about two centimetres thick. And that sitting underneath the baby's shoulders is just enough to, to allow that baby's head to extend. So it's just in a neutral alignment. So... It's no way near extended. That will offer another, you know, occlusion to the airway, but it just allows that nice and that um, neutral airway. That's not enough. You have to hold. When you've got a really floppy baby, that simply under the shoulders won't necessarily help you that much. You have to, but it, it assists. You will still have to be very much hands-on. I think that's what often takes us by surprise because, like I said, the training models we use are so robust and rigid. They sort of naturally sit in a, in a neutral position. You have to be quite hands-on. Um, with that neutral alignment and that in itself if you've provided that support may be the next step that allows that baby to take its first gasp but it might not be so in terms of that hands-on neutral um positioning sort of fingers in like a almost like a little baby jaw thrust kind of kind of area absolutely yeah and i guess really what we're trying to aim for much like an adult resus is the, the little one's ear in line with the sternal notch and yeah. facing the ceiling. Completely, that's it's, exactly yeah. it, yeah. yeah. So um, it's just that they've got a lot more behind the back of their head compared to an adult. Exactly. So, yeah, it's it's like that. Brilliant, okay. Um, so in an ideal situation then, having that baby in a more neutral alignment, assisting just with that airway maintenance, really, keeping that airway open, like you said, that might be enough to stimulate the baby to start doing what it needs to do. But if it doesn't, we've got some very important next steps, um, our five inflation breaths. Yeah. Talk to me about an inflation breath. Yeah. So this baby has been born, so fetal circulation um, doesn't involve the lungs. The lungs aren't a part of a baby's circulation until it takes that first gasp. And the lungs up until that point are full of full of fluid, um, so it's completely normal. Now, born spontaneously vaginally, some of that fluid will be pushed out, um, but the rest it has to dissipate into the circulation when that baby takes his first gasp. So, failure for babies to take that first gasp means that we have to do it for it. We have to push that fluid out. And until then, you can bounce on this baby's chest for chest compressions. You can give it whatever else that we would maybe think with other resuscitors. It will be completely futile because all the time that we haven't aerated those lungs, we haven't got any circulation happening at all as far as um, 
activated the lungs and aerating and getting oxygen to the heart. So you're spot on with these five inflation breaths and how important they are because we are mimicking what we wanted this baby to do when it was first born. So it requires just a different technique um, with inflation breaths. So essentially they are they are much longer. And when we when we teach, I think people like fall asleep by the time it takes me to do five inflation <laughs> breaths because you know I do emphasize that it is you know to the count of three, but really slow, deep breaths. So in our PALS kit um, in London, um, we use the paediatric BVM, so that with a blow off working blow off valve will be set to about 40 centimeters of water. So for a term baby, um, for your inflation breaths, that's fine. And so you're depressing the bag completely. Um, so really good seal around the, the nose and the mouth, making sure that you're lifting the jaw into the into the mask. You've got a really nice C&E grip. Mm ideally a two-person um, mask um, action. Like we would with an adult? Exactly, exactly. So that's your gold standard if you've got the resources on scene. You want two-person technique. And so it's those long, slow, deep breaths five times. So you're going one, two, three, off. Two, two, three, off. So it's, it's really slow. And you can imagine that your adrenaline's going this baby is not responding you know the panicky family but you have to slow it down and you know um the the human factors element of me wants to bring in that expert assistance that you know hand on the shoulder just telling you to slow down mm -hmm. you know if you're not leading resus but you can see someone is you know have the courage just to put their hand on the shoulder and just slow things right down because you're going to be quickly you're not going to aerate those lungs you're not going to push that fluid out into the into the circulation um so really slowly five times then reassess and the sign that it's worked is when you put your stethoscope to the chest and you hear a lovely rise in heart rate and you can see the chest rise so you can see you've aerated those lungs because you're now seeing chest rise yeah and so we also avoid the use of oxygen as well in nls is there a reason for that? Yes, yeah, so we, we know with newborn babies, so it's a little bit different and, and the guidance is most likely to change as a result of the, the new evidence with the new ERC, particularly with preterms. But we know that babies respond to room air. Okay. There's no need to hyper-oxygenate these babies. Um, and that's a variety of different reasons as part of the transition. So we know that um, newborn babies will have a higher haemoglobin, so a high oxygen car carrying capacity. Um, it is it you know that 21% oxygen which is room air is is perfectly acceptable it's only in babies that are really compromised that we know are moving down towards chest compressions that we would consider introducing oxygen and that's only when we've got the equipment to monitor to monitor the sats, so you need yeah. your sats um, yeah. before you start introducing oxygen yeah. um, and again that's emphasized in the, in the new guidance but I think it's a great point to pick up on quite early and that you don't need to worry about faffing around with your oxygen cylinder you know a BVM um, is all you need with the right fitting mask thank you okay so hopefully we would um, after five inflation breaths we're going to have a listen like you say hopefully we will see chest rise and have a really nice fast heart rate but potentially we don't um, potentially we still a really slow heart rate or maybe an absent heart rate and uh, no respiratory effort what's next 
So then we need to consider, so we're still very much on fairway at the moment. It really is, you know, NLS is really A's and B's, very rarely do we move to C. So it's going back and reassessing your airway. Is this baby in really good neutral alignment? Is it warm enough so I'm optimising all my efforts? It's not getting cold, so it's not shut down as far as that's concerned. And maybe you could tick both those boxes. Then we need to consider maybe more of an established, and when I say established airway, uh, it, I'm talking OP. Yeah. It's nothing, you know, it's nothing more um, established that at this point. So I would very much consider now is the time to visualise. So um, we use just a tongue depressor, a little wooden tongue depressor. You size up your oropharyngeal airway and I would insert that. Um, the only difference with newborns is just it doesn't need turning. So you, you place it in the position that it's going to sit um, in the in on the tongue. Um, and again, that will just help as far as if, if the occlusion, if it's an occluded airway, um, visualising with the tongue depressor might allow you to see if this baby hasn't responded because it's maybe got a blood clot or a clump of meconium or some vernix or something that's occluding the airway that you could suction away with with a, um, with a suction catheter. Um, so that's kind of then your next step. So you're um, your OP airway and then repeat your inflation breaths and I think the the key message and quite often what we see with NLS in hospital as well as pre-hospital is where you've raced ahead and you thought this baby isn't responding I need to move to the next step and it isn't it's a case of going back doing something to help that airway then repeating the inflation breaths and we don't move on until that chest rises yeah do we? exactly we don't move on yeah, yeah. okay that hasn't been successful we've still not got the outcome that we want this, this stubborn baby this one we're going to need to do some more intervention what's the next step yes yeah, so what you're likely to see and as far as we're working our way down the algorithm is that you've you've done what you needed to do with clearing that airway popping in uh, an op airway and and you've seen some chest rise the likelihood is that providing you've got all those steps that you've checked and you've got really good jaw support you've got your okay airway in baby's nice and warm you should see chest rise i mean babies that don't respond to that i would be very concerned that this is you know this is really down and i would be thinking that i need to move and just carry on my inflation breaths to do exactly the same what you're most likely to see is that you've got your chest rise which you're quite relieved about so you can assume that you've done the job and you've pushed that fluid out of the lungs but baby hasn't yet quite picked up so you might have still a very slow heart rate and the baby isn't spontaneously breathing by itself so that's when we move down in the algorithm to the ventilation breaths and they're just different to inflation breaths because they're quicker and they're shallower so you don't need to depress the BVM completely and it's just one on one off so it's um, 30 breaths per minute um, is what you're going for um, and that again is just that 30 seconds worth to help confirm you've got chest rise it's a really good way of just double checking yes I've definitely seen chest rise and it could be just that next step in that you've inflated the lungs let's give you know this baby a little bit of ventilatory support um, and hopefully the baby will respond there and that's really that's really really important that kind of stops us from diving into chest compressors too soon we're kind of still very much thinking respiratory 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 and just check if unfortunately that hasn't worked and obviously we have to cover all all you know sort of outcomes that is when you would then move into your chest compressions so it's um uh, with with your chest compressions it's synchronized chest compressions to ventilations and it's three to one so it's three chest compressions for every one um, ventilation breath 
Um, gold standard is that you've got your your two person airway support and then one person that can circle the chest with their hands and do the breath and do the chest compressions while the airway team do the breaths. Mm. Um, there are techniques that you can look at if you're the unfortunate person that is a solo responder mm. um, so that you can manage to. And that's with the two finger technique. I don't know if you've seen that placing your two fingers in the center of the chest. Um, so, you know, with babies, it's not as deep. It's a third of the depth of the chest um, and it's quite quick. Mm. Um, you know, you're looking at 30 cycles in 30 seconds that mm. you want to do of those of those three to one. Um, and then again, reassess. You know, you're reassessing a lot more. It's, you know, we, we don't do two-minute cycles in NLS. It's very much 30 seconds, reassess. 30 seconds, reassess. And just just coming back, I know we've already emphasised this already, but just to re-emphasise, it's 0.03% of deliveries which will require the CPR um, aspect of NLS. So again, to hold that in your mind, to provide a bit of reassurance, but also as a reminder to make sure that you've really done your airway and your ventilatory management superbly before you whisk away. Like, because it's so different to, to, you know, an adult where it's all really, a lot of it is about good chest compressions and defibrillation is is the survivability um, factors really in, in most cases, whereas for the... Um, the neonates it is all about that oxygenation that ventilation um, brilliant okay um, so thank you um, that's really helpful to, to think about in terms of in terms of leaving scene with a situation like this mm. again I think we've we've already sort of really emphasized the importance of not just scooping and running super quickly um, that's not going to help your survivability of this baby. It's about optimising your airway and your ventilation on scene before you start thinking about um, um, extrication, if that if that is necessary at that point. Um, what is the best practice in terms of mother and baby transport if you are requiring NLS? Um, so I think the reality is it's very much probably a team-led decision because you have to be mindful with the really complex and it kind of goes back to what we started with episode one wasn't it around the fear and the complexity that can come about with maternity calls is because all of a sudden it's now two patients so I think it's really important that you will always consider mum and baby as a dyad so this particular case that we're referring to is newborn nicephil. So priority, you know, most attention you can imagine on scene is to this baby that hasn't responded yet. But you still have to make sure that whoever's leading the scene has also got someone caring for the mother because you've got to monitor her bleeding, you've got to monitor her condition. And you've also got to therefore make that judgment call. Is this mum fit to either walk to the ambulance now with you or can someone follow very quickly in a chair? And depending on the condition of the baby, if this baby is requiring active resuscitation, you optimise the on-scene care that you can do ready to transport this baby. So when we say that, we mean you've got this baby with a hat on, with a towel, in the blizzard blanket. If you've got access with your equipment to a thermo mattress, you've also got that as well. So you've, exactly as you've said, you've optimised this baby's position and environment 
then you're moving very quickly into the ambulance. If mum can make it, then you know there's no reason to separate mum and baby, and you can keep up that communication as far as informing what's going on. Otherwise, it would very much be going with baby and just explaining that they will make it a priority to reunite mum and baby as soon as possible. So as far as where to go, we would say resus. Resus is resus. You are resuscitating this baby, so you're putting in a pre-alert to the emergency department and going to resus where everyone will be ready. They will summons the team down, so there'll be a call that will go out to the neonatologists um, and the obstetric team. And I would just make sure you've got that really clear with your with your teammates on scene and that we are going to this hospital, we're going to ED, because then they can follow mum in there. Yeah. What you don't want is mum going to labour ward or to a birth centre on the 14th floor and for her baby to be taken to ED. You want to reunite them as quickly as possible. And the best way to do that is con- to convey them to the same place. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So being really clear. And really clear, I guess, as well in your, in your pre-alert, whether you've got mum with you or whether yeah. mum is following behind um, and being clear with your, you know, so that you make sure you get the right people down um, to to the ED as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you, Stacey. That's a great explanation of how to manage um, that neonatal life support. So that's really good, Stacey. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's just, I think people get bored of me with... <laughs> with my sort of obsession with thermo regulation that yeah. I just don't think that we can emphasize it. We, you know, I, if you can, you know, the listeners just to consider that these, these newborn babies, whether they're term or preterm, they have no way of maintaining their own heat. And they've come from an environment which is in their mum, in the fluid. So, you know, a sort of 36, 37 degrees. They're coming out, if they're lucky, it will be a lovely summer's day and it might be 22 degrees, but that's a massive drop already, let alone if this is maybe January on a cold bathroom floor that happens very quickly at home. This baby is going to get extremely cold extremely quickly and it has no mechanism for it to maintain. It can't shiver like us. It can't, you know, it hasn't got the mechanisms in place. You know, a term big chunky baby has fat stores it's got the brown fat that it can metabolize but again if we're just relying on that then this baby is going to become acidotic very quickly from burning that brown fat that it's not meant to let alone preterm tiny babies they haven't got anything they haven't got that that brown fat to metabolize to produce heat so they're going to become hypoxic extremely quickly um so it really is we, we cannot emphasize enough about keeping these babies warm and re, you know turning cracking up the heaters in your ambulance even if it's august heat wave um unfortunately and just wrapping those babies up you know in london um our critical care advanced paramedics have the thermo mattresses and they've got the digital auxiliary um, thermometers you know th- i mean the the dream is that we soon especially based on this most recent guidance is that we can roll that kind of equipment out across all our ambulances um, but as you can imagine that takes a little bit of time so at the moment you know our crews are very much we're trying to just educate them on what our advanced practitioners can bring to a job with neonates it's not that much as far as the principles of NLS but they've got a couple of little things that can add and optimize um, and it's around that thermoregulation because it's that important and and if we don't have the luxury of a critical care APT with us We've got our blizzard blankets exactly. part of the maternity kit as yeah, well. Yeah. So it's remembering to um, familiar familiarise yourself with the with the blizzard blanket and remembering to use those. Yeah. 
um, when, when available. Yeah. And if you can document your temperature, that would be fantastic. If I know amongst everything else that's going on, but even in a normal birth, um, we really want a temperature of that baby. Um, so it's axilla temperature, um, and um, and you really want to monitor, monitor that, knowing that what's normal is thirty six point five to thirty seven point five. So a very small frame, as a small window. Sorry. Um, so you need to manage either or either side. Mm-hmm. The most likely pre-hospital thing is that it's going to be below 36.5, so you have to manage that baby and keep it warm. You know, And all of that, obviously, is, is emphasised whilst you're performing the resus. It's just as important. Amazing. Thank you, Stacey. I've got my bugbear in there. <laughs> <laughs> keep the babies warm. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, thank you so much, Stacey. We are back in a week's time with our final episode where we're going to talk about um, actual delivery emergencies such as breach, uh, postpartum hemorrhage, shoulder dystocia, um, those obstetric emergencies. And we're also going to be covering some of the key incidences that we see pre-hospitally um, uh, to give a bit of guidance, to share a bit of that learning um, from those incidences. So hopefully you can join us again for the next episode. And if you haven't had a chance already, do go back and listen to the previous two. Uh, Thank you very much.